For those of you who don't know me, I'm Dave Allen. I'm the pastor of teaching here, and about every other week I get a chance to open up the Word of God and, and, and encourage you and challenge you. And today we're, uh, we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 18 to begin with, but we're going to look at a couple of chapters, and we're going to be looking at the subject of soulmates, soulmates. Uh, at the age of 25, he was elected to Parliament, and at the age of 25, she became the Queen of England. He is the United Kingdom's uh, longest-serving member of Parliament, and she is the UK's longest-serving monarch. But uh, those are probably the only two things that Queen Elizabeth and Winston Churchill had in common. We got slides working here? Oh, there we go. Good. Some of you recognize them. Some of you younger people may not, but... Uh, they couldn't have been more different. He was the first prime minister that she met with, but she was the last of six monarchs that he had met with. He was a, a gruff person. He was tempered by war and politics. He was both a national hero and a national villain, while she was this young princess, uh, entirely unprepared to be a queen. She was forced into the spotlight and into her responsibilities when her uncle abdicated the throne after less than a year of kingship. Uh, Winston Churchill spoke too much, uh, and she spoke very little. Having trouble with the slides. There we go. Um, he said things like, if you're going through hell, just keep going. Uh, Lady Astor said to Winston Churchill, if I were your wife, I'd poison your coffee. And he replied, Nancy, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. That's, that's what he's like. The queen, on the other hand, the queen, on the other hand, aside from her annual Christmas address, had spoken to the nation only five times in her seven decades as queen. But... These two had a weekly meeting that they had to attend, the prime minister and the queen. And if you're interested in seeing how, how unlikely friends these two actually were, watch season one of The Crown on Netflix. It's actually, I recommend it. It's an excellent series. Unlikely friends who forged a bond that weathered some of the worst times that England and the UK had ever experienced. And in our study of the Old Testament book, 1 Samuel, we find two other unlikely friends, a pair of men that, that really shouldn't have been friends. And as we've been looking at 1 Samuel, that we're, you, you might know that we're in this, the middle of this story of, of a, a political infancy, this, this national question mark and weakness, and, and even spiritual compromise. And in the middle of this story stands two men, who show us how to forge a friendship that cultivates a heart for God. They are the definition of soulmates. Friends that go deeper than sports, liking the same team. Friends, a friendship that goes deeper than family, because we're family, we have to be friends. Friendship that goes even deeper than just attending the same church. Friends that are attached at the soul. And the question as I begin here is this, do you have soulmates? Do you have a soulmate? Can you, can you name one? If you can, 
then you are fortunate. And that's awesome because so few people know what it's like to have a friend attached at the soul. Some people don't want soulmates. It's just too much work. Or maybe they had friends and a soulmate and, and things went bad and they got hurt and they don't want to go through that again. And I understand that. But our God is a God of relationship. Our salvation comes through a relationship, a relationship with Jesus. If you have the son, you have the life, the apostle John said. And the Trinity is the unity of God in three persons. There's a relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus prays for us about that relationship. He prays that all of them may be one, Father, as he's praying for us, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, our God is a God of relationship. Thanks, brother. And Jesus, in John 17, the whole chapter is a prayer. And in the middle of that prayer, he prays for relationship. He prays for a depth and a harmony in our relationships that match the depth and the harmony of his relationship with his father. That's Jesus' desire for us. He prayed it for us. And so being and, and finding soulmates is part of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple of Christ. And so the question we're going to ask today as we look at Jonathan and David is, so how are soulmates forged? How are they forged together? Let's ask Jonathan and David, who we meet in 1 Samuel, specifically chapter 18. So as you turn there, let's ask, why, why were these men unlikely friends? Why, Dave, do you call them unlikely friends? Well, Jonathan is the king's son, so he was the assumed heir to the throne. And yet the prophet Samuel was directed by God to anoint David as the heir to the throne. Jonathan's the assumed heir and David is the anointed heir. They should have been mortal enemies. Jonathan's father couldn't defeat the Philistines and along comes David who knocks down their hero in one shot they should have been adversaries, Jonathan and David. But their kindred spirit made all of that stuff about the throne secondary to living in the center of God's will, to living in God's plan together as brothers. And so one thing that we read as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, is that soulmates are forged by the Spirit. Verse 1, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. He was keeping an eye on him, right? And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe, the robe he was wearing, and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And whatever mission... Saul sent David on. He was so successful that Saul gave him a high ranking in the army. And this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. So you could be different in every way. Circumstances could have you pointing at each other as adversaries. But if the spirit forges the friendship, there is a unity that overcomes any difference. 
they became one in spirit. And I already mentioned this, but, but Jesus prayed that his disciples, that you and I would share a spiritual unity that mimics his relationship with his own father. He prayed, God, I want all of them to be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in them. His prayer wasn't merely that, that we get along. His prayer wasn't merely that our church wouldn't split. He prayed for a spiritual oneness like the kind that he shared with his father. Is that even remotely possible in the church? Well, we read about the first church in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we read that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Acts 4 continues where it says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, uh, work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. That's soulmates being the church, the church being one in heart and one in mind, and, it, and we read that God added to their number just as Jesus prayed. He prayed that they be bought, brought to complete unity. And as, as we think about that, Jesus said in John 17, that then the world will know that you've sent me. When we have that kind of unity, then the world will know that you have sent me. And so I, I think of this, it, somehow the depth of our unity determines the strength of our believability. Because that's what Jesus prayed, that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me. So, so somehow the depth of our unity will determine the strength of our believability out in the world. They'll notice that something is different. How many of my relationships I've had to ask in my study this week are spiritually that deep, where we could say we are one in spirit. Hey, Dean, this isn't working at all, so can we just, we'll just turn that off so it's not distracting me. <laughs> Thanks. So I had to gauge the spiritual depth of, of my relationships with my closest friends. And I've had to say, are we one in spirit? And how can we become one in spirit? Who can you say that you are one in spirit with today. I think we have some work to do. I know I have work to do. And so first of all, soulmates are forged by the Spirit. Secondly, soulmates are founded on sacrifice. Did you notice those verses there at the beginning of chapter 18? Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. That's a sacrificial kind of love. And it was evident that it was sacrificial love, as Brother Jason Carver shared last week, because Jonathan gave up all of his royal equipment, which in, his, in essence was giving up his royal authority. He gave up his robe and his sword and his bow. What was he doing? He was relinquishing the throne to David because he knew and he was willing to accept God's plan that David would be the next king. That is sacrifice. Can you imagine how difficult that was for Jonathan? who grew up assuming that he would be the next heir, but that wasn't God's plan. 
he loved David as he did himself. That's a sacrificial kind of love. You know, we see that phrase in Scripture a lot. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. To love as you love yourself. And, and that, that's not a self-centered love. Scripture is not saying we are to become lovers of self. In fact, 1 Timothy, we're told to watch out for people in the last days who become lovers of self instead of lovers of God. And in some Christian circles, this phrase has often been paraded as a text which teaches us that we need to love ourselves well in order to love others well. And it fits nicely into the gospel of self-actualization, um, which is the peak of all human pursuits, you know, to fulfill yourself. And yet, that's not what it means. In fact, the Greek construct of that phrase, especially as Jesus used it, is better understood not as two commands, love yourself and then love your neighbor. That's not that but rather love your neighbor as you already do love yourself. Take care of your neighbor as you naturally take care of yourself. That's the meaning of the phrase as it's used in Scripture. So rather, rather than finding in this phrase like an, an ancient reference to self-image and, and uh, boosting your self-esteem, we should really understand that we already and naturally do things for ourselves and to ourselves because we want to stay alive. When you're hungry, what do you do? You feed yourself. When you're cold, you get a blanket. You take care of yourself. When you're tired, you should, you should rest. And we don't even think about it because it comes naturally to take care of ourselves. So when someone else is hungry, feed them like you would when you're hungry. That's what it means. If someone else is cold, get them a blanket, just like you would get yourself a blanket. If someone else is tired, help them find rest, just like you would find rest. It should be a spiritual no-brainer because it comes natural to the spirit which he gave to us. That's the meaning of Jonathan loving David as himself. And this is the kind of, of love the spirit produces in the spirit-filled believer. In fact, in chapter 20, verse 4, Jonathan uh, says to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. That's sacrifice. Soulmates are founded on sacrifice. And you know the verse in John 13, when Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Sacrificial love. Jesus says our love for one another is what will attract the world to him. Another bold statement that I'm not sure I truly, truly, truly believe. And I'm not saying I'm a heretic, but I'm saying practically, do I really believe that? I feel like we, we agree that love is definitely a byproduct of knowing Christ. But do we believe what Jesus says here, that supernatural, sacrificial love is sufficient to attract people to Jesus and to show them that Jesus matters? We read that that kind of love between Jonathan and David was actually attractive to other soldiers because there was a band of brothers that began to come together around David and congregate around him. 
But I got to confess, when I look at these two soulmates, these two unlikely friends, and then I read the words of Jesus, I confess that I have massively underestimated the power of spiritual unity and sacrificial love for the expansion of God's kingdom. And I've got work that I've got to do. Jonathan and David shared a supernatural love that was forged in the spirit that kept God's plan and God's kingdom alive. In fact, it kept them both alive. And as we'll see later, it drew others into God's kingdom and his plan for the future. What else do we learn about these soulmates just in these first few verses of chapter 18? The third thing we learn is this. Soulmates are confirmed by process, uh, by promise. Soulmates are confirmed by a promise. We read here in, in, in verse uh, 3 that D Jonathan made a covenant with David. Guess what? That wasn't the first promise that he made. Because we read in chapter 20, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. Chapter 20, verse 17. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Another oath. In chapter 20, verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So soulmates are confirmed by promises. Promises made and promises kept. And notice this last promise was not just personal. It was generational. This was a promise that was to extend to their descendants, to their kids and their grandkids and so forth. These soulmates were promise makers and they were promise keepers. That idea doesn't sit very well with our non-committal culture, does it? Where we don't make promises very often, we keep our schedules open, but to find to be a soulmate, we have to keep promises with one another. And that may look different for different people. It may be a weekly phone call. It may be a monthly coffee. It, it may be a, a weekly Bible study where you commit to one another. Maybe it's a, it's a retreat. You go, you go on with your friends. You take a vow of silence to be with the Lord, and you come together to pray with one another. That idea of making promises as soulmates might, might be different for different people. There's one individual that I would consider a soulmate. He doesn't uh, come to this church. In fact, he doesn't live in this state anymore, which makes me sad. Um, but I have uh, a brother in Christ named James. He and I have walked through some very deep waters together. Um, we have had to disperse some very dark clouds in our lives. We've asked questions of God that, that I wouldn't entertain in, in just any situation um, and struggles that, that uh, we've had in our thinking. We've Zoomed, we've FaceTimed, um, we've sat in cars for, for hours talking. Um, we have prayed together, we have cried together. Um, but he's somebody that at, at any moment, if he were to call, my phone's off now, but if he were to call, I would pick it up because of the promises that we've made to one another in the Lord. And so soulmates are spiritual, spiritually forged. 
And they're founded in sacrifice, and they're confirmed by promise after promise after promise. But know that this, this relationship between Jonathan and David uh, was, was born in adversity. And many times, that's where our soulmates come to the forefront. It was born in adversity because as they were becoming closer, Saul was becoming more and more insane in his envy and jealousy of David. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 19, the first five verses. 1 Samuel 19, the first five verses. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. So Saul tells his son to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, warned David, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I'll go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? What is Jonathan doing as, as David's soulmate? We find he's sitting here, number four, soulmates defend each other before men. He's defending his brother, David, before men. Jonathan protected him. Jonathan defended him. Jonathan rescued him. And for a short while, it kept David safe. And that's what soulmates do. Here, things returned to normal for a little while, but as brother Jason shared last week, Saul's envy turned once again to jealousy, and he was all about trying to kill David. And so in chapter 20, Jonathan once again steps up to defend his soulmate before Saul. In chapter 20, verse 30, Saul is, is angry. He's flared up at his, his son, Jonathan. He calls him, you're a, you're, you're a son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I know you've sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Saul's trying to look, get Jonathan to realize, don't you get it? Your kingdom is gone if this guy is alive. Jonathan was like, yeah, I get it. I get it. That's okay, because that's not God's plan for me. Saul says, send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. And Jonathan, just, I can see him just shouting out, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. And then Jonathan knew that his father's intent was truly to kill David. See, here in, in chapter 20, verses 30 to 33, we realize that Saul, this king, is in full-out insanity, trying to kill even his son as a conspirator. So he was in hot pursuit of David, the one anointed by Samuel to replace him. David was on the run, but as the story goes on, as you read there, he, he won battle after battle against Israel's enemies, and more and more soldiers defected 
Saul's army and join David's band of brothers. And at this point where we're going to re-enter the story, David had 600 soldiers with him, and, and some of the priests even defected to his camp. And so whenever things got dicey, David would go to the priest, and he would inquire of God, and whatever God said, whatever next step he had to take, he would do it. He obeyed God step by step. And that's what happens in chapter 23. He asked God if it was time to move on. God said yes, and so he got out of there. Chapter 23, uh, verse uh, 13. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he didn't go there, obviously. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. And while David was at Horesh in the desert of, of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. Now, here's what I want you to see. The last thing about what soulmates do. Watch what happens with Jonathan. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. And I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. And this is probably the most significant window into their relationship. The most significant window into their, their friendship is right here in the middle of this scene where we read, Jonathan helped David find strength in God. Not strength in weaponry, not strengthen his numbers as more men were coming over to him, not strengthen strategy, but Jonathan helped David find strength in God. And so this is number five. Soulmates drive each other toward God. They defend each other before men, but soulmates drive each other toward God. David talked to him. They probably prayed together. We don't see that in Scripture, but they probably prayed together, and they made another covenant or promise to one another. And notice it was a promise made in the presence of the Lord. It was a spiritual promise. It wasn't just a promise between the two of them. The Lord was part of their promise. But Jonathan drove David to find help in God. I remember um, Sister Evelyn Tyson telling us a couple of times in our discovery group of a, of a dear friend uh, from her past, she said that no matter what the circumstance was of their meeting, you always left talking about Jesus. Her friend had a way of guiding the conversation back to Jesus somehow. And that's a precious friend. It's awesome to have a friend to come alongside of us when things are difficult. But even more so, it's awesome to have a friend who can bring us alongside of God when we're going through a tough situation, to find strength or mercy or to help us praise God in, this, in our difficulties. Jonathan knew David's strength was not ultimately in his band of brothers. It was not ultimately in his carefully thought out plans. Jonathan knew that David's strength, his friend's strength, must rest in God. And he took him to that place of strength. And notice, Jonathan initiated. He went 
to David and Horish to give him strength. Where do you drive your friends? Some will tell you, I tend to drive my friends crazy, and that is true. But I'm guessing that when you're in a friendship or in a relationship, it's difficult at times to help them find strength in God. Now, I'm, saying you don't, I'm not saying you have to have an agenda every time you get together with friends. That's not what we're saying. But when the Spirit begins to speak, and he says, here is an opportunity to point your friend to find strength in God, do you do it? Do you hear it? So many relationships are like the, the empty inner tubes on the lazy river. They, they float along with no purpose. They just kind of go in circles until they get sunk. Soulmates know that there's a greater purpose than just hanging out. And there's nothing wrong with just hanging out. But soulmates know that there comes a time for intentionality to push, to nudge, to drive their friends to grow deeper in spirit and deeper in love, deeper in vulnerability and in the direction of God. You know, after Winston Churchill had his first stroke, the queen made a decision. The queen decided that when he died, he should have a state funeral. The first time the honor had been granted to a commoner in more than a century. Now, Winston Churchill was still alive and active, but the queen had already decided that. And when Churchill finally did pass, she was supposed to ask permission of parliament to hold a state funeral for a commoner, but she didn't. She told him she had already planned it. Queen Elizabeth, like, like other kings and queens, did not normally attend the funerals of commoners, but when Churchill died, she attended. In fact, she broke all custom and all precedent by attending his service, and then she broke protocol again by not showing up last. You see, the queen, protocol dictated that the queen should always be the last person to arrive in any public event. So all attention would go to her. She didn't do that. She put all of her royal etiquette aside. And out of respect for the Churchill family, she went into the church and was seated before his coffin came in. When he died, the queen immediately sent a letter to Churchill's wife and said, the whole world is the poorer by the loss of his many-sided genius, while the survival of this country and the sister nations of the Commonwealth, in the face of the greatest danger that has ever threatened them, will be a perpetual memorial to his leadership, his vision, and in his indomitable courage. These two were soulmates, different as they were. They were soulmates. And I hate to tell you this, but the story of Jonathan and David's friendship doesn't have a happy ending, at least on this side of heaven. Because we read in chapter 31, verse 2, that Jonathan and his brothers and his father, the king, all died in battle on the same day. Second Samuel opens up with David being told his soulmate Jonathan was gone. And he mourned and he fasted. He even wrote a lament for Jonathan. And later we find out when Jonathan's remaining son was in trouble, who came to the rescue? 
David did. Jonathan's son ate at the king's table as part of his family because promises were made and promises would be kept between these two soulmates. David had to continue on. He had to ascend to the throne and shepherd his people and find his strength in God without his soulmate, Jonathan. But he found strength in his God because of his soulmate, Jonathan. It wasn't their plan, but it was God's plan. And I can tell you this morning from Scripture that soulmates are in God's plan for you. Jesus prayed for them. Jesus prayed that you and I would have relationships like this. Maybe not hundreds, maybe one or two, but Jesus prayed for a unity and a love that would mimic his own relationship with his Father and the Spirit. And you and I need to pray for them too. We need to seek them out. We need to realize that things can be different in our relationships because Jesus prayed for that difference. And the world needs to see that difference. How do we know that we'll ever, ever experience a soulmate or two or three? Well, we worship someone who gives us a new spirit so that we can connect to God's spirit and so that our spirits can connect to one another. We worship Jesus, who is capable of connecting us through his spirit into deep relationships, where we can be one in spirit and heart and mind. We also follow someone who, out of love, sacrificed himself, just as soulmates sacrifice. He sacrificed himself. He severed his own relationship with his father in order to repair our relationship with the father. And we follow someone who's a great promise maker, and a great promise keeper. He even advocates for you at the throne. He goes to the throne of God and says, Father, don't count Dave Allen's sin against him. I paid for those. I died for those. He is free. He is cleansed. He advocates for you and for me. And Jesus drives us into the strength of God. He drives us to the Father. He brings us right into the throne room of God as we read in Hebrews where it says we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and we can find grace to help us in our time of need, Hebrews 4, 16. You see, we know this is possible because Jesus is our soulmate. So our prayer is that he would mold us into the kind of people and multiply for us soulmates for his good, for our, for our good, for his glory, and for our believability in the world. Let's pray. So God, we do come to you and we say that we are in and of ourselves not capable of these kinds of relationships. God, in and of ourselves with our sin and with our hangups and with our, our past and our hurts. God, we're not capable of these kinds of relationships. And yet, Jesus, you've prayed for us. You prayed for your disciples. You prayed that we would have relationships that are one in spirit. You showed us the sacrificial love that it takes. And you've given us 
the ability through your spirit to love like that. You've, you've shown us the promise that you've made and you've kept it. And because of that, Lord, we can do the same. You've given us a body of believers, a family, a spiritual family where we can defend and protect, advocate for one another, admonish one another. And Lord, you've, you've given us You've given us a wonderful spirit that can not only connect us to one another and to you, but can drive and direct us to you in our time of mercy, in our time of need, in our time of strength, our need for strength, as, as Jonathan did for David. And so we know it's possible. We praise you for the relationships you have given us, but God, we're not satisfied. We want to be the answer to Jesus' prayer. And so, God, would you mold us into soulmates? Would you multiply soulmates around us so that the world may know that you matter, that you're real, and that you were sent by the Father for them? We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.